The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston in the sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday, in person or on live stream. For details, go to fapc.org. And now, here is Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston. In today's text, John of Patmos, the author of Revelation, describes a vision he's received from God, a vision in which the world is made anew. Let us listen together to Revelation, chapter 21, beginning with the first verse. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also, he said this, write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Uh, on either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit producing its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. This, my friends, is the word of God. For you, the people of God. Thank you, God. Okay, so the 2022 midterm elections are in the bag, mostly. <laughs> Some votes out there are still being counted. Some God bless you live streaming folks in Georgia have to vote again. <laughs> As we rate for all the final tabulations, I'm curious. How did you do? <laughs> I'm not asking about your candidates or your favorite political team, but you. How did you fare? Did predictions of Armageddon unnerve you? Did Tuesday's returns cement your concern, or did you feel relieved? Personally, I am glad to be on the other side. I found this year's political ads unrelenting in their gloominess. Last Sunday during 
breaks in the Jets-Bills game, I muted our television every time the broadcast cut to commercial. I, I couldn't take any more grim voices explaining why this candidate or that candidate would be an unmitigated disaster. I'm not, I like to think, naive. I believe that big things, including democracy itself, are at stake when we go to the polls. And I know that politics has, has always had its nasty attacks, its dirty tricks, its conspiracy theories, and its fear-mongering. Still, I was surprised to read that various interested parties spent a staggering $16.7 million on this election, most of it going to negative television and social media. Did that massive pile of money move the needle? Well, <laughs> on reading Wednesday's New Yorker headline, I laughed out loud. Midterm elections deliver a stunning return to the status quo. <laughs> Truth be told, the, the irony in that headline, it kind of comforts me. Maybe our, maybe our nation's passionate political disputes are not signposts that we're on the way to Armageddon. Maybe, having fought our way to another electoral draw, we're slowly, painfully, learning to appreciate the unsatisfying brilliance of our democracy. We'll see. In the meantime, we have work to do. To avoid falling into another two years of pointless name-calling and infuriating gridlock, I have an idea. I suggest that we ask our politicians, every elected official, every candidate for public office, to articulate their hopes for America. I think we should ask politicians to toss aside their, their carefully crafted talking points and speak in broad terms about their vision for this country. I say this, yes, because I'm sick of political attack ads, but, but also because I'm just plain hungry for vision. Aren't you? As the book of Proverbs observes so wisely, without vision, people perish. When, when people cannot point to a positive vision, when we have no picture of the future that can orient our hearts and inspire our days, bad things happen. Where there's no vision, trolls creep out from under their bridges. Where there's no vision, people latch on to fear, anger, and hatred. Proverbs is right. Without vision, people perish. But I didn't need to tell you that, did I? Because as people of faith, we're all about vision. Our tradition, the Bible itself, is overflowing with, with sacred vision. Scripture begins on, on, on page one of Genesis by describing the created world as a lush and lovely place, the Garden of Eden. And then if you flip to the back of the book, to, to Scripture's last chapter, 
the Bible ends by describing another blossoming paradise. Rows of vigorous trees grow alongside a crystal clear river. Fruit from those trees feeds all creation, and the leaves of those trees heal our divisions. Eden has returned. The Bible is bookended by visions in which all the world is a peaceful garden. And I don't think that's a coincidence. This morning we're going to focus on the second of these two bookends. In the last chapter of Scripture, the book of Revelation describes the Holy One descending from the clouds and standing on the earth. God shows up and God brings water, light, and leaves, healing for the world's broken places. It's, it's a majestic and a hopeful picture. Scripture casts a vision big enough to inspire us. It's also big enough to scare us. You know what I'm talking about. Life has taught us to be cautious. Don't run toward a, a mirage on the horizon. Guard your piggy banks against fraud. Don't be taken by some huckster who's, who's peddling a vision that's simply too good to be true. So naturally, the book of Revelation stirs up in us all sorts of serious questions. We need to know, channeling the late great Freddie Mercury, is this the real life or is it fantasy? <laughs> Will this green garden of a world come to pass, or is it a pipe dream? And, and, and how, exactly, how exactly will creation be renewed? Who's responsible for this big project? What role do we have to play? What indeed? Typically, Scripture doesn't roll out a vision and then say, please sit back, relax, enjoy the show. God's got you covered. Typically, when the good book picks up a paintbrush, it invites the rest of us to grab a sketchbook. Revelation beckons to us. Come on, faithful people. God has a plan and a long to-do list. What part will you play? Do you feel compelled to work for pure river water? Will, will you plant trees of life wherever you go? What will you do? Visions, good visions, inspiring visions call us to action. And as such, good visions, inspiring visions make us a little nervous. Could this really happen? Who will pay for it? What sacrifices will this vision require of me, of you? No wonder politicians shy away from casting vision. They know that every vision implies sacrifice and trade-offs. Sacrifices worry us. Trade-offs worry us. Mention trade-offs and we pull our slice of pie a little bit closer. What's this going to cost me? What's it going to cost you? Is this vision just? Equitable? These are good questions, especially because the challenges we face in confronting climate change are rarely as simple as we might wish. 
Let me offer two quick examples to highlight the moral complexities before us. Example number one. I am both excited and amazed at how quickly automotive technology has advanced. The range of electronic vehicles, the, the total miles that an EV can travel on a single charge is increasing all the time. According to Dan Neal, reviewer for the Wall Street Journal, over their lifespans, today's electronic vehicles will account for two-thirds less carbon emissions than similar-sized gasoline cars. And, and that calculation factors in the vehicle's production cost and emissions, the cost of the electricity being generated in emissions, and the end-of-use recycling costs. Seems like a good thing. So what's the rub? Well, the rub involves the batteries that power these cars. They're made from copper, nickel, cobalt, and lithium. Let's focus on copper. The world's copper mines have a notoriously bad environmental reputation. Why? Because extracting copper requires the use of chemicals to leach the mineral from excavated rock. In this process, mines create a toxic slurry that must be stored in a holding pond. For how long? Basically, say scientists, forever. If that slurry escapes and gets into the surrounding water table, and it's done exactly that in multiple locations around the world, the results can be catastrophic for local communities, farms, and wildlife. Complications like that foster what I call NIMBY environmentalism. Are you familiar with the acronym NIMBY? It stands for Not In My Backyard as in, we need copper to create a greener world, but I don't want you mining copper in my backyard. Full disclosure, one of the largest underground copper deposits in the United States lies in northern Minnesota. It's not far at all from our family cabin. It's not far at all right alongside the Boundary Waters Wilderness Area. The Boundary Waters, established by Congress in 1964, is a million-acre preserve, pristine in its waters, teeming with, with walleye pike and bald eagles and, and majestic white pines. And there, there are more than a few boy and girl scouts there, wide-eyed, making their way through those sky-blue waters and lakes, seeking to earn their wilderness camping badges. I tell you this, my friends, as prelude to a confession. I'm a NIMBY. <laughs> sometimes I struggle with it, and sometimes I don't. I don't want to put the incredible beauty of our country's northern wilderness at risk. And at the same time, I know that the costs of NIMBY environmentalism fall most heavily on the world's poorest communities. The world is desperate for copper. Mining is going to happen. And it's going to happen in countries where the trade-off for short-term economic gain outweighs long-term environmental risk. What to do? Wishful thinking will not make these hard trade-offs go away. 
Example number two. This one's shorter. The Presbyterian Church has a program whereby every time an official travels by plane, the denomination contributes a, to a tree planting organization somewhere in the world. The goal of the program is to offset the carbon footprint of the travel. Bravo, right? Friends, I'm personally passionate about planting trees. I plant them every summer. Our family cabin, that one in northern Minnesota, is basically sitting in a forest and still I plant trees. Trees are the earth's lungs. Without them, humanity would cease to exist. Trees deserve our daily gratitude. What criticism can possibly be leveled at a tree planting initiative? Well, again, <laughs> there is a legit debate surrounding this topic, and it goes like this. As scientists consistently point out, the best chance that we have for cooling our planet is to reduce the carbon we emit before we admit it. <laughs> Cutting emissions, stopping pollution before it happens is job one. So what happens when numerous corporations plom promise to, to plant a tree for every t-shirt that you buy and every bottle of wine that you purchase and every credit card swipe that you make? Does this virtue signaling distract us from more difficult and more costly endeavors? Maybe it does. And to make matters worse, scientists calculate that we now have made more promises to plant trees on this planet than there is space to plant them. <laughs> My first response to that fact is, wow. <laughs> and then I ask, well, is that really so terrible? I plan to keep right on planting trees every summer. I hope you will too. I, I don't ever want to disparage small, good-hearted efforts to care for creation. We each need to do our part. But at the same time, stories like this should sound an alarm in our heads. Are we settling for too small of a vision? The fixes that we need to develop and deploy on behalf of this blue-green planet are going to require more effort than, I bought a t-shirt today and somewhere someone planted a tree for me. If we want to do more than virtue signal, if we really want to move the needle on climate change, we need to pursue substantial changes in our corporate behavior, especially when it comes to how we produce energy. And at the same time, we need to figure out how to care for those caught in the crosswinds of change. One more quick example. The science, my friends, is clear. The world needs to wean itself off using coal as a fuel for energy. Coal is the most polluting option we have for mass producing electricity. It also happens to be the cheapest and most accessible fuel source in many parts of the developing world especially India. 
Last week, Senator Joe Manchin criticized President Biden after he called for the elimination of coal-fired power plants. Some scoffed and dismissed Manchin as a tool, a mouthpiece for a dirty industry. I paused. I paused not because I wanted to rethink the science of burning coal. I paused realizing how easy it is for me to ask others to sacrifice the burning of coal. You see what I'm doing here? What are the trade-offs? Who is being asked to sacrifice? It's a complicated question. Manchin grew up in a mountain community where people's livelihoods are intertwined with coal mining. Does this mean that Manchin's concern for the people of West Virginia outweighs the problem of coal? I don't think so. But let's add a little bit more complication into the equation. Do the energy needs of hundreds of millions of poor people in India outweigh the world's mission-critical effort to reduce coal-fired power? No? Yes? Maybe? Now, I've started to wonder if we're always asking the right question. I suspect that a better question, given the complexity of these facts, a more faithful question might sound like this. Can we make empathy an integral part of the environmental movement? Can we learn to care about communities who have already been ravaged by climate change? And can we learn to care about communities who will suffer because of critical climate change solutions? And, and while we're at it, what might that kind of compassion look like? The answer, I think, is Revelation 22. In its final chapter, the Bible pictures a future in which life on this planet is renewed. Water flows, plants grow, people feast on pomegranates and strawberries, all coming from the same tree. In this luminous dream, these trees heal the planet, and they heal us too. Somehow, the leaves of God's plants soothe the cankers of human resentment. They draw the venom of hatred from our blood. Do you see what Revelation is doing here? It paints a scene in which the restoration of the planet and the healing of human relationships are one and the same. In making all things new, says Revelation, God is going to send a crystal clear river twisting through the land, and God's going to pull out a pocket hanky. God's going to plant trees, and God's going to run through the world, wiping the tears away from everyone's eyes. God's going to harvest fruit, and God's going to speak like my wife, the school nurse, the way she speaks to an injured child, calmly, gently, dispensing hope. There, there. You're going to be all right. I promise you. Everything's going to be okay. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away.
the Bible is clear. The path to restoring this planet goes hand in hand with the restoration of human relationships. You cannot, Revelation testifies, fix one without mending the other. My friends, the vision that scripture sets before us is no small undertaking. It will require hard work, creative thinking, difficult sacrifices, and deep pools of empathy. Still, the good book won't relent. It exhorts us, pursue Eden. Hold, hold God's garden forever in front of your mind's eye. Seek the promise of, of, of a place where, where trees bend under the weight of ripe fruit and, and people's deepest hurts are healed and every tear is wiped away. It, it's a big vision. So maybe our collective mantra should be go big <laughs> or go home. Although that assumes, of course, that if we don't go big, we'll still have a home. Friends, go forth from this place and wrap God's vision around your heart. And as you go, have courage. Hold fast to what is good. Do not return evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all people. Love and serve the Lord. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit fapc.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.